Pages of Pim Better Podcast. Greetings, Voyagers. Welcome to the Voyages of Tim Vetter podcast. This is episode number 256, and I'm back in the Eastern Shore in Maryland. I've got a long-running list, very interesting people that I'm trying to record with. So every time I come here, I try to take off one, two if I can, and get some great conversations recorded. So my guest for today is Mark Castelli, and I've had my eye on him for a while. He is a painter and an artist and there's a lot of really interesting layers to him. He's had a um, very colorful life. I had first seen his work. There's a gallery here in Chesterton where I'm staying, but I think I first saw it online because I'm very much interested in people who work on the water. I've had a couple of episodes thematically about that. And I saw his work depicting the, the baymen, the fishermen, the oystermen who work here on the Chesapeake Bay. He has incredibly lifelike paintings. They almost look like photographs. And Mark's been able to now for years go out on the water with these men and photograph them while they work. And he also works alongside them. He, he's not into self-promotion. His work really isn't about him. And I, I find that very honorable and very cool so I wanted to meet him. It was hard to get a hold of him. Mark, you are a hard man to get. Uh, there's a fantastic bookstore in here, uh, in, in town here. And every time I visit, I buy stuff. I don't need more books. I'm, I'm like v- many books behind, but it's impossible not to go there because there's so much good stuff all the time and they're constantly replenishing the, the books that get bought. So I'm always buying stuff. And I say that to say I was in town one day and I saw one of Mark's paintings in the owner of the store, Tom. I was chatting with him and I was like, ah, oh, I've been trying to get a hold of him. Uh, do you know him at all? And he's like, yeah, one second. And he writes down his, his email address. And so Mark and I had a, a correspondence back and forth and I knew right away. I can always tell right away. You know, from time to time, I don't mean to disparage anyone, but from time to time, I'll, I'll reach out to people and I'll say, do you want to be on the podcast? And their first response is, well, how many listeners do you get? How many downloads do you get? And I understand that that's relevant to people who have something to sell or trying to expand their reach. And it may sound defensive, like I don't, like it sounds like I don't have a lot of listeners to say that that's very off-putting to me. Um, and often the conversation doesn't go any further than that. As soon as somebody says, well, it depends. How many listeners do you get? I'm just like, ah, okay. I, I, I'm doing this for the conversation uh, and, and not for, I don't know, likes or profitability or to feel good about myself. So I love the conversations. And right away I could tell, talking to Mark that even in his emails back and forth and he's super witty and he writes poetically. And once we met, we, we got to talking to books and it's, it's the, the kind of thing I love. So I was able to meet him here at his home. Like so many guests, he welcomed me into his home, which is always kind because I'm a weird guy and I'm a stranger in their home. So uh, it was really great. And there's so much I didn't know about him because I really only knew that art that I had seen. And he, he wrote something in a follow-up message to me that I actually think helps sort of describe where he's at right now with artwork. Um, So I'll read this to you and try not to fumble it too much. 
He said, while watermen and their boats, gear, and harvests are a lot of what I paint, and those elements used to be the sole inspiration, it has of late become more about the circumstance of light, expression, and all the little details that can in themselves tell you a lot. I find myself and them in it. The paintings have become more informative and more reflective of that which inspires me. Now, where we are here on the Eastern Shore, it is a really beautiful place. There's water, there's farms, there's a lot of vibrancy, there's there's beautiful sunsets. So I, I think I understand what he's saying there. Um, but he has tons of sketchbooks going back decades, and I got to, to peek through one, and we, we chatted about them. Um, so he, yeah, he is really multi-talented and really bright and a great storyteller. And it was an honor to, to have him on here chatting. I ask these questions that probably could have in themselves been an entire podcast, just the one question. Um, so we'll, we'll have to do, we'll have to do a follow up because there's so much more to talk about. And even though this one was about, was about two hours. So yeah, we'll have to do another one. Um, there's a gentleman that's mentioned in our conversation, and I think we actually described who he was before I was recording, uh, but he comes up a few times, and I wanted to mention his name is Mr. Peter Franchot, or maybe it's Franchot. Um, he is the the longtime state comptroller in these parts around here, and um, he's going to be running in the gubernatorial race in, in 2022. And I just wanted to clarify who that was because that's a name that you might hear and go, hey, who is that when we're talking? But otherwise, I think when this is one of those conversations you need to sit down with like a notepad because there's a lot of Easter eggs. <laughs> we talk about books and, and artists and authors. And I think you would be remiss to kind of miss those. So write those down and then hit up your local library or your local uh, mom and pop bookstore and load up on uh, all those Easter eggs that we talk about. All right, folks, I am going to stop blabbering on and on here. Enjoy this conversation with Mark Castelli. I do have to thank you, first of all, for, for having me here in your home. I know oh, sure. I'm a stranger, and that's a strange thing for some people. It's quite normal for me because that's what I do. Uh, and I've done this all over the world, but, but thank you. Um, I hadn't even really like heard your voice until recently, but I watched the couple of videos that the Missoni gallery had done where you were talking about your work. Right. And I got the impression that you must also be a reader, uh, or just deep down a romantic guy because of the way that you were able to to talk about your work, but also sort of notice notice elements of the scenes that you were a part of that maybe other people wouldn't like the light hitting a crab and the translucence of the crab I thought was just really wonderful. So I was like, oh, I can't wait to, to talk to Mark about his work and about the, the people that he's representing. So it's an honor to be here. So thank you. <laughs> you may not think that when we're through. <laughs> okay. <laughs> if, I, uh, if I come out of this bruised and bloody. Um, <laughs> It'll be your fault. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> you're on my turf. <laughs> I won't hold you accountable. Um, now, you nailed a lot of things there. I read constantly. I read about 20, 25 books a year. 
everything from, I just finished one called The Fifth Sun. It's about a history of the Aztecs. Incorporating all of the things that the Aztecs and the previous people had written. So it's a new history of these people. And history fascinates me. My father's PhD was in cultural geography. My mother's was in French history. So I grew up with history and geography. Where was it that you grew up? All over. It seems that way. I was born at Fort Bragg, North Carolina, 71 years ago next month. Hey. And lived in Japan, lived in Burma. Um, you lived in Burma? Yeah, just when the generals took over. We, we left just as that was happening. So when I was 10 years old at the time. I mean, I have memories and some memories of the political turmoil, but, but not in detail. My father was making maps for the Burmese government before the generals took over. The only maps that the Burmese government had were World War II British Empire maps. So, I mean, you know, you live in Burma 10 years old, the only thing you can do is collect stamps, swim, and go to school. Did <laughs> and that build s- models on Sunday. English models, mind you. Did that seem uh, extraordinary or different to you? Well, there were a lot of freedoms that we didn't have because you couldn't drink the water. You couldn't go walking down the streets pretty much by yourself when you're that small. Um, But, you know, we had moved as an army brat. You move every two years. So whether it's from Fort Benning, where one of my brothers is born, to Fort Campbell, to Fort Leavenworth, Norman, Oklahoma, where my father got his master's, and then to Burma for two years and then back to the Air Force Academy where my father transferred to the Air Force so we could stay there longer Um, and just travel. I love to travel. Every two years I get the itch to go someplace. But I like living here. This is where I'd love to travel, but I want to come back here to Chestertown to the Eastern Shore. Let me pin that and come back to that because that's very interesting. Okay. Uh, was your dad also a cartographer then? Like yeah. How- oh, yeah. He's a map maker. He was a, a militarily trained map maker. And you got to remember, this is in the 50s and the 60s and early 70s. So this was all hand-drawn maps and hand-colored and everything. So he And he taught at the Air Force Academy. He taught for seven years there. Geography, meteorology, political geography, cultural geography, geology. Chris, uh, vacations were always interesting with two parents with, who were teachers at the same time. So, I mean, I'm I'm doing exactly what my father did when I live when living here. Mm. So, I, for some reason, Burma just fascinates me. I had read, um, gosh, I can't even remember the author now. I'll have to tell you afterwards. But I had read a history or a as concise as it could possibly be uh, a political history of Burma, and it's. It's so insane, like how 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 much it's changed from decade to decade, how many different identity groups and ethnicities and how it's pulled it was pulled in so many different directions between China and England and uh, it seems like it, it, an incredibly beautiful place, but also a place that just had such a tumultuous history. Oh yeah, always so many invasions. They, when we were there, they were exporting rice. They were one of the largest exporters in Southeast Asia. Now they have to import it. Mm. It's just, uh, and what they, what the generals did to, what's her name, Aung San Suu Kyi, I think is her name, yeah. was a, a brilliant piece of, of political manipulation. Take her out of jail, you look good. 
let her run for office. You look real good. But the minute you get elected to an office, you are marginalized by the system. Mm -hmm. And they did that, and they did it knowingly. And now she's back in jail again. Yeah, and they had the whole Rohingya crisis during her her presidency. She blew that publicly. She blew that in a a very inarticulate way. Mm. But she was managed, you know. I'm very cynical about politics, especially right now in our country. Oh, I'm with you, so I'm, I'm, glad, I'm glad we agree about that. Oh, well, no, I'm, I'm, if you ever want to read a good book, you read On Tyranny by Timothy Snyder. Okay. It's a tiny little book, but it'll scare the crap out of you. And it's where we're headed if we're not careful. When you were jumping around as a kid, did you land in any place that you figured like, okay, this is a place I would like to stay? Well, I always like to go back to Burma now that I have my own cameras and, mm. and I see things in a, in, a, in a different way than I did as a kid. As a kid, we, you drive past. It was very rare that we were outside of Rangoon, mainly because there were a lot of insurgents going on at the time. My father had a, a reward on his head put there by the Burmese communists because wow. he was working for the Burmese government making maps. So whenever he traveled, he always had a Burmese army escort. And we traveled once with him way up country with the Burmese army escort, which was great because as a little military brat as a kid, being around soldiers and heavy-duty trucks and firearms and stuff, yeah, that was pretty cool shit. (laughs) Mark, you're Indiana Jones. Well, I don't know about that so much. (laughs) But you did see a lot of ruined temples and pagodas and things, um, places that nobody went to anymore, but they were special to the, the locals that lived there. And you drove past uh, burned-out Japanese tanks or crashed airplanes. You know, as a little kid, it just feeds your imagination pretty quick. So, yeah, I'd like to, I'd like to go back. I'd like to go to Japan. Uh, but the Japan I would like to go back to see would, would not, is not the Japan that's probably there. Mm. Um, there are lots of places I want to go back to. I went to Oman for uh, two weeks. That was fascinating. Finland I'd like to go back to. My brother was in the foreign office, so uh, through him I could arrange through the USIS office an interview and propose an exhibition of paintings, and then luckily I could go. If they said yes, I'd, I'd go and do an exhibition of paintings and um, get to meet the local artists and writers and whatnot, but also get to travel and shoot pictures. And and through that, I got into a program called Arts and Embassies. So there's a lot of embassies that have my work hanging on the wall, mainly in Africa. For some reason, I can't get into European embassies, but I can get into African-American embassies. So I don't know why, but I think it's probably because of my subject matter. People still fishing commercially and fishing in ways that people have fished for thousands of years. And people in Africa fish very much the same way. So it's, uh, there's, there's a, a lot of cu- cultural continuity, mm. uh, specifically in, cult- in the commercial fisheries. Did your, uh, did your dad write it all or sort of document? The, My the, dad? Yeah. He taught. Uh-huh. So I have all of his color slides from Burma. All of his color slides from Japan after World War II. Have you done and anything? And my with mother's. That? You know, I'm so far into what I'm doing now, it would be really hard. And, you know, I turn 71 next month, so. Um, 
I'm not sure my kids want the obligation of having to take care of all of the, the color slides and the photographs. And I may, Phyllis and I, my wife and I have talked over probably donating them to a university that has a special department on Burma, for instance, mm-hmm. um, where they can be used and kept and not be in the way. I mean, you look around this house, it's full of books. There's not a room in this house that doesn't have a book in it or a bookshelf, let alone the photographs. There, and I'll, I'll show you the studio a little bit later, but it's... Cool. Uh, it's wall-to-wall books and photographs. I mean, I don't need northern light. <laughs> yeah. Did, so, go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. Did the, or did your fascination and love of the water come before, like, your realization that you had artistic abilities, or did they happen around the same time? I lived in West Michigan, on Lake Michigan, and on an inland lake that had a channel to Lake Michigan. I lived White Lake Michigan for 12 years. I had never sailed a boat before that. I had seen rivers and seen lakes traveling all over the world like I had as a child. Um, But in Michigan is when I really started to look at water and take photographs of water and draw it. I did not paint, God, for years out of college. I had a very healthy respect and fear of color for many, many years. Winslow Homer said something once about, if you can do it convincingly enough in black and white, the colors will suggest themselves. So that was my excuse for many, many years for not painting or or using color in my work. And I still draw. I have, this is volume number 69 I'm working on of pen and inks. So there's there's an average of 100 to 110 drawings in each book. So there, it's what I do in the evenings. But... Water fascinates me to no end. Um, For example, I did an exercise this summer that I'd never done before. We're crabbing on the Chester River, uh, trot lining, and and I'm always taking pictures of the sky and the water because they're part and parcel of each other. They reflect each other. And I'm always noticing, almost too late sometimes, when I reach for the camera that what I wanted to take a picture of has changed just in the blink of an eye. And it could because the boat could be because the boat changed slightly and now there is smoother water next to the boat. It's reflecting differently. Or again, the boat changed a little bit more the other way and the water's more textured because of the wind. So I, I stood there and I shot 15 seconds. I shot 15 photographs with about three seconds in between each one of the same piece of water next to the boat as we're moving along. And there are 15 different photographs. So water is never the same, ever. And that fascinates the hell out of me. Hmm. To be able to paint that in, in, in its detail, it was pointed out to me one time that and I, and I work very closely to the photographs. I'm not replicating the photograph, but there is more than enough information in that for me to figure out how to, to make how to give you the idea of, of what you're looking at. So, to the leeward on a sailboat, the water is very smooth because there's no wind there. To windward. The water's all puckered up and plucked at by the wind and the way it boils off the boat and off the sails. 
that attention to detail is very important to me. Hmm. So there are a lot of watermen who tell me, I wish you'd clean my boat up when you painted it. I said, why? Everything on that boat belongs there. It's there for a reason. You know, and who am I to take that out of the picture? Who am I to change the light in the clouds if, if, or take somebody out of a picture? Which I've done because they've pissed me off. But that's a whole other part of what I paint. Um, I, I like being out on the water. I like being in the elements. I was oystering Monday this week, and it was 27 degrees when we hit the water. It was freaking cold. Yeah. There were boats that were coming alongside asking us for salt so they could salt their decks down to melt the ice on the washboards before they stood up there to hand tongue for oysters. So I'm on the water twice a week, three times a week, all year long, come what may. And I find that a challenge. I like the physical challenge. I like the physical work. And I also like to use my paintings and my photographs to remind people that their seafood doesn't always come from bluebird calendar weather. Oh my gosh, I, there's so many places I could go now. I'm trying to trying to organize all my thoughts based off, off of what Told you said. Told you, I talked through my elbow <laughs> to get to my nose. <laughs> you are doomed. <laughs> um, all right, the, the first question I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of is, have you ever read a book or heard of a book called Blue Mind? Blue Mind? Yeah. No. Okay, I'm going to send you a copy then. Um, it's been a while now since I've read it, so I'm probably going to sound pretty foolish trying to describe it, but it's essentially studies of the brain and what's happening to like your physiology when you're either in near or looking at bodies of water. Um, they even ran tests of people who are like looking at water on a screen or in an image and seeing what's happening with their brain waves, with their heart rate, with their, all that kind of stuff. And it's fascinating. I, th- I think likely there's some sort of primordial, like we evolved from water, so that has to be something. We resonate to tides. We resonate to rain. We resonate a lot to water. So I have another title for you. Awesome. Called Proust was a neuroscientist. Okay. All right. And it's written by a guy named Lehrer, L-E-H-R-A-R. It's a little volume, but it's what happens to the brain when it's confronted with a new painting or a totally new kind of music, or a taste, or the written word, like when Whitman started writing, people are going, some people were thoroughly offended by it because it wasn't the rules of prose at the time, or Stravinsky's Rites of Spring, which caused riots because people didn't know how to handle it, but they came back the next week because the mind had developed a filter so that it could listen to it. It's a fascinating little read. So this book, Blue Minds, intrigues me to no uh, end. I'm going to send you a copy. Yeah, do, you like, do you like Patti Smith at all? Uh, music. Um, or writing. Um, I, I, most of my music is late 60s, 70s. And writing, I don't think I've ever read anything by her. Okay. The only reason I ask is because um, some of my favorite episodes I do or the conversations I talk to people, there's like all these little Easter eggs for listeners. And when I read her books, she's just constantly referencing like so many artists and authors I've never heard of. So I keep a little pad when I read her books. I'm like writing down That's all these. That's how I am when I read. I okay, beautiful. My drawing books, the first three or four pages are all authors or films or music. I love it. Um, yeah, it's, you can't 
be so egotistical to just be so focused on one thing that you deny the world, so to speak. Mm. I mean, when I talked about being on the water, it's my father teaching me about weather. I asked him one time, I said, I don't know what it is about these people that I have grown so fond of and who are now, they let me into their families. Um, there's just a whole plethora of reasons why I've settled on the watermen. And he said, it's because they're independent, they're their own bosses, and they work outside with their hands. Mm. And, and that pretty much summed it up for me because every time I'm with them, it's, it's all of those things together. And they're testing themselves against the elements. They're testing themselves against the catch. They're testing themselves against probably their patience sometimes, but it's always a test. And you never know what the hell you're going to see, ever. I am so addicted to being outside on the water that when I'm painting these guys from pictures that I shot maybe two or three years ago, it's there's part of my mind going, what am I missing today because I'm not outside with them on the water seeing what they're seeing. Mm. In 26, 27 years next year, I've seen a lot of changes um, in regulations and catches and things that are coming and going, um, attitudes. Uh, it's I have the time, because I'm not a full-time waterman, to have a, a wider perspective, and also I have the time to advocate, to write for them. I just finished off a piece about Mr. Francho again, who uh, I just, a lot of watermen are really pissed off at this man for his arrogance about doing away with a public fishery and trying to save the bay on the back of aquaculture. And the aquaculture lobby definitely has his ear and the Bay Foundation has his ear and his facts are coming from very siloed information from these groups. So I had mentioned this earlier about well, you had asked something about the Billion Oyster Program, which I can't fault people for wanting to put more oysters in the bay, but I can fault them for doing it in a way that denigrates the commercial fishery, denigrates these men, their families, their communities, the businesses that are very dependent on them. Um, that part bothers me. There is room for aquaculture, and there's also room for a public fishery. Uh, and I wish Mr. Francho would just get that into his head. He has a year to educate himself between now and the next elections in November, and I hope he would listen to more people. You know, it's, it's, it's frustrating because all of the years I've spent on the water with these guys, I started to discover early on they're outnumbered. Mm. They're, and it's a cultural war. It's, it's a war, it's a zeitgeist. It's a war of perspectives I, I have so many thoughts that's why I'm like grinning a little bit um, I'm trying to organize them in my head here <laughs> um, I wanted to I'm going to come back to that I wanted to briefly mention uh, one of the things I was thinking about just like in the planning of this and you mentioned the episode I did with Chris uh, out in uh, Greenport on Long Island and like I don't come from a, a family of watermen or anything like that and, I, and I'm I was trying to sort of like figure out why am I so sort of enticed by this topic and this lifestyle? Like, 
why am I looking at it in, in a sense romantically? And I think there's like a million places I could go with this, but um, I'm going to connect it back to what you said about sort of how does that like seafood end up on your plate, right? Yeah. Um, we, I, I'm, I'm kind of like fascinated by the underdog. I came from like a punk tradition. Like I'm, I'm fascinated by the, the blue collar worker. Like those are always like my favorite artists and writers. Um, and we were in Honduras over the summer, we, meaning my girlfriend and I, we went to an island called Roatan. We were like, we made it through part of this pandemic. I had gotten COVID. That was terrible. Like it's just, let's go somewhere where it's like kind of hot for a little while. And, you know, we're, we're used to like hostile travel, which can be a bit uncomfortable. Like let's go somewhere that's comfortable, but like, isn't really like resorty and stuff like that. It's still right. a place where we can find people living. Um, and so Rotan's this island off of obviously the mainland of Honduras. And there was like a political issue that was brought up while we were there in that obviously Honduras, there's a lot of poverty. There's vast corruption in the government as there is pretty much everywhere. And there were men coming from the mainland who were diving for lobsters, some free diving, um, some diving with gear, but all, mostly untrained and many like getting the bends, getting, I forget what the actual term for the sickness is, but um, I think it's when like the nitrogen gets into your bloodstream because mm -hmm. you rise too fast. Yeah, bends. Bends, yeah. yeah. And you can be crippled from it. You can die. And so on the island, people were saying, well, then tourists have the responsibility to not eat lobster here. And when you actually like look at uh, where the lobster is going, they ship a lot of, not a lot, the vast majority of that lobster up to the east coast of the United States where you'd think lobster might be plentiful. Like everyone's heard of Maine lobster. Um, and it was interesting to me because I've eaten plenty of lobster, but never once have I thought that there might be somebody who was just trying to earn a living for his family in Honduras who is now crippled for life going down for that lobster that ended up on my plate. Um, yeah, there's there's a lot of... Where do you draw a line? Yeah. That's a very, I mean, it's, I know a lot of lobstermen and one in particular up in Winter Harbor in Maine. And I pay attention through national fishermen about what's going on up there, shortages or gluts, or when the Canadians are starting to dump on the market up there. There is no clean, um, how much can you live with? How much of yourself can you live with? Um, I, whenever I'm in a restaurant and I see oysters on the menu, I ask if they're if they're aquaculture or if they're wild caught. And you see this this veil drop across their face about uh, well, what do I tell them? And as soon as I see that, I go, ah, you know, I think I'm going to go for the fried chicken. Mm. <laughs> you know, even though chicken on the shore is one of the major polluters of of the watershed. Um, when I ask about crab, is it local or is it imported? Is it from North Carolina or Virginia? I mean, some years there's not a lot of crab up here, and this past season was pretty thin on crab for quite a while. I mean, bushels off the boat were going for $200. Whoa. Yeah, so you didn't need to catch a lot of crab to have. If you caught five bushels, which would be normally a pretty poor day, but if you got five number ones, you had a $1,000 day. I know guys who've been on the water for 40, 50 years that said they have never made so much money off of so few crabs in their life as they did this past season. So Philip Seafood, major importer of, of blue crab from 
Vietnam, Thailand, Indonesia. Well, that didn't help here any. You know, um, Maryland, it's, Maryland doesn't protect its seafood industry as well as some of the other states do for rockfish. Um, Maryland oysters leave this state and all the shell goes with it. Shell's going to become a huge issue for replenishment, which is the oyster part of um, planting and reseeding. And then you have restoration, which is the eco-environmentalists like the Bay Foundation, for instance, and Coastal Conservation, which is a fishing organization. And I have no idea why in the hell they're so political about oysters, but everybody wants shell, and that mm -hmm. shell's leaving the state. And the only way we can have shell in this state again, instead of leaving it, is to have more shucking houses. There's only like two shucking houses on the eastern shore, and we have an amazing number of oysters right now. Aquaculture makes its own deal about shell. They'll sell it to restaurants and they get their shell back. So they're they kind of have this nice self-feeding loop that they're into. Though last year, during the pandemic, aquaculture oyster is three inches and less. That's their, their shell, open shell market, half shell market in restaurants, cigar bars and whatnot. Well, because of the pandemic, the market dwindled. Their oysters grew to four inches, too big for their market. Now what do you do? Is that like a people wanting like white eggshells type of thing? It's just like preference and like it's a preference. Aesthetic, yeah. yeah. I mean, some people like just a, a three-inch oyster. We'll give you an oyster about that big. It's perfect for slurping. Okay. Thing. Okay. Four-inch oyster is a little bit bigger. Anything bigger than that, you want to. You basically want to use. You want to chop up in soups or in, st in stews and things, or just bake with bacon oysters. I forget. Casino is what they call it. Those people in aquaculture were stuck with their oyster, this four-inch oyster. The Pew Foundation stepped up and bought all their four-inch oysters and then dumped them on the sanctuaries. Nothing ever came the way of the public fishery because their market dwindled. Nothing. So now here is Mr. Franchot, who I'm going to beat like a dead horse. Um wants to use aquaculture as the, as the dominant oyster business and they couldn't meet the market demands because their oysters grew too big. I mean, there's, there's a really weird imbalance here that's going on. Um, so when you are concerned about where your food is from, God, where do you draw the line? Yeah. I mean, my son, we, when we first moved here, we were renting a farm outside of town, Dan Creek Farm on Wilkins Lane. And they planted soybeans and they planted winter wheat. I love watching the wind on winter wheat. It's like watching the wind go across water. Mm. It's just, and one night, I mean, I had, used to have an old video camera. I put the tripod up out in the driveway, put the camera on, full moon, and you could watch the wind just blow across the water, the, the winter wheat. Oh, it, it, it was remarkable. But my son, who has a particular way with words, um, he builds models too. These boat models are his also. He lived on Tangier Island for six years. He's got the bug too. Okay. Um, he confronted by a vegan who's into soy, and uh, my son said to him, "So you don't eat meat, but you eat a lot of soy-based products." And the guy, and whoever it was, would say yes. And he goes. Have you ever seen a harvester? Have you ever seen a harvester cutting soybeans? 
No. Did you ever think of all the little animals that get chopped up in that harvester? You have blood on your soybeans. (laughs) And that killed the conversation. (laughs) But where do you draw the line? You know, so you're talking about these lobsters from this island off of Honduras. They need to make a living. What is it that's wrong with their government that they can't support that fishery in a way that those guys aren't killing themselves and also find a way to buy those lobsters and consume them there in the restaurants and whatnot. And there's, there's a lot of questions wrapped up in that. I talked, and I said earlier, I talked through my elbow to get to my nose. No, it's, I, yeah. it's, I love it's, it. It's so inter, inextricably interwoven, all of these questions that you have with other larger questions. Yeah. I'm curious about, um, you were initially teaching, right? Well, I I taught drawing and painting. Okay. But I used all of this to teach painting with. Okay. Then how did, like, how did you get your start um, going out with the watermen? It's a good story. Oh, I'm ready for it. (laughs) It's It's a remarkably foggy, I think it was like January, well, no, November day. So you've got late November, it's cold. It's cold enough for now, for several, when we moved here, there was ice on the water very early in the year, 95, 96. So the boats are frozen to the docks at this little dock called Long Cove off the Chester River. And I, in the farmhouse, could see the fog just rolling across the fields next to the house. And I went, I got to get down to the docks because I want to see the boats in this fog, get some pictures. And I took off and drove way too fast because this stuff disappears too quick. And I get down to, as I'm driving down the road to Long Cove, the fog is rolling out of the trees like a forest fire, like smoke. It's just rolling out onto these fields. And I'm going, oh, shit. And I just pedal to the metal, like get down to the dock. And the docks are full of all these watermen who are bored to death because they can't get out because they're frozen to the dock. But they got to get out of the house. Mm-hmm. So they go down to their boats, and it's this community on the dock of everybody knowing each other. And I get down, and I get my camera out, and I start taking pictures. And they don't know me. I'm new here. I don't know them. And there is this litany of questions you get. Um, well, who are you? Um, are you who, who, what newspaper are you shooting for? What magazine are you shooting for? Um, are you a reporter? And the last question is, are you with the DNR, Department of Natural Resources, the water cops? Which, and it was, and I answered every one of them. I said, but no, I'm not with the DNR. I'm just, I'm an artist. I want to paint pictures of, of everything that you guys go through. I don't believe in just doing bluebird calendar weather. I want people to know that their seafood comes from hard times, hard weather. And that kind of opened up a few things. So I could walk the dock and it's like whisper down the lane, boat to boat to boat to boat. They pretty much had an idea who I was by the time I got to the end of the dock. And at the end of the dock, there's this guy in the boat and he's working away on a motor. Um, Jerry Creighton was his name, is his name because he's still alive. and he looked up and he asked questions like, you know, where you live? And I said, I live out in Wilkins Lane. He goes, are you from here? And I said, no, nah, we just moved down here. And he goes, oh, you're nothing but a damn chicken necker. Now, 
I know the chicken necker is an insult around here. It's because that's people from up north come down to Trotline recreationally for crabs and they use chicken necks yeah. for bait. And I said, you know. Which I have done. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, this year there were people using chicken necks because clams were so damn expensive, mm. you know, or, or veal lips or bull's lips. I mean, there was or, or chicken. <laughs> just, um, people were using frozen ducks for, for crab bait. Um, and I looked at this gentleman and I said, you know, I know exactly what that means. And it kind of got quiet on the boat. The other people are listening. And I said, let me tell you something. I don't fish recreationally. I don't crab recreationally. I don't oyster recreationally. That's how you make your living. And I'm not taking food from you or your family by doing this just for the sport, the sport or the fun of it. And he gave me his name and his phone number. He said, come April, call me, and we'll go out crabbing. And that was my first invitation out. Mm. It expanded later that year. I had done a painting of a waterman who's passed away now and his father, um, hand-tonging on the Chester River for oysters. And he was getting married. And all the ladies, all the wives and girlfriends of watermen got in a car and they raised money and they came to the back of the farmhouse we were renting and introduced themselves and they told me that they wanted to buy that painting as a wedding gift for the son that was in the painting. And I, I said, well, um, I'll give it to you at a special rate. And it's still a special rate I have. I said, you can have the painting for $200 and it's even framed and I'll throw the frame in. And this is way below gallery value. Um, and they were more than pleased. And I said, you know, it's great. So kind of another inroad into what I'm, I'm trying to do, establish myself in a way that's, I'm not an interloper, I'm not a young kid that's just starting out and using these people for, you know, my economic advantage or my artistic career. I want to know these people and I want to be with them on the water and I want to do what they do so I can understand what it is I'm painting. And I can tell their story through the paintings. So I got invited to the wedding reception after they got back from Las Vegas. And there I got five or six phone numbers and names of boats and people. And it just kind of, word got out about what I do, why I do it, how I do it. And I don't show up on the boat with big sketch pads and, and easels and, and you know, I'm, I do not want to be intrusive. So much so that my first set of oil skins were yellow. And when I got on the boat I, and I started painting from some of these pictures, I kept seeing this yellow cast. And it's like, oh, shit, these guys don't wear yellow oil mm. skins. So I bought my green oil skins. Now there's no light announcing my presence on the boat. And also visually to other boats, I'm part of that crew just visually. You know, I've been called everything from F-Stop Fitzgerald to, oh, the photo banger, uh, Mr. Kodak, you know. Um, but that's, that's how I got into this. And then being on the boat with them for so many hours every day, because whatever happens, I, you know, it's, I'm not like some photographers who have their own little boat and go out and shoot in perfect light conditions and then go home. I shoot through the whole arc of the day, the sun. Mm. And it gives you all kinds of different things to see at different times and textures. And, and 
um, faces and body language. Is it a good day? Is, you know, you can see it in their posture. Is it a slow day? There have been days when I've been out drift net and we haven't caught anything in the net. And I took a lot of pictures, but I won't paint from them. I, there's an ethical line where I can't make money off that day that they didn't make money. Wow. So I have days where nobody caught anything. I have some pretty nice pictures, but I'm, I'm not going to do that. And they know that. It means a lot to me that they know that because every time I get off the boat, they said, call us anytime. And uh, I mean, and I do. You know, it's like I said, I'm on the water two, three days a week. I guess I, would, I have what you would call like a rudimentary knowledge of the, of the trade and the community. But through the, the bit I've read and the people I've talked to, it seems to, I don't know if subculture is the right world, but, word, but it seems to have its own culture. Um, Oh, yeah. Because it's like-minded people or at least people who are living and working in the same way. So I'd imagine maybe they might have had a bit of trepidation initially about sort of letting you into that circle. The trust levels, and there are a lot of books written about the Eastern Shore, uh, a lot of books written about Waterman where the gentleman has written the book and then he's never, he's not welcome back to where Mm. he spent his time. He betrayed trusts. I have notebooks full of stories. Uh, and they get nervous when I write these down on the boat sometimes, just real quick thumbnails. What are you going to do with that? I said, well, I'll get home and I'll flesh it out. And then I'm just going to put it away. These will be stories that our great-grandchildren will want to hear. And even if you were breaking the law in the story, it's not going to hurt anybody. Mm. And it is a time capsule of what you've done, what you're doing, what you've been through, and how times have changed. Uh, and they, and I, they let me do that. What I, one of the many things I think that I like when I was looking at your, when I look at your work, is that I was thinking for some of these men, the scene that you're depicting to them must seem so, I don't mean to be insulting when I say mundane, but maybe regular. Like I've, I've done this thing a thousand times, but this is the scene that you're choosing to depict and it does turn into a beautiful image. But to them, it must just seem like, like, why are you interested in this? It is. And the flip side to that is sunrises, mm-hmm. all right? They're focused. They're on the boat. They're focused on the gear. They're focused where we're going to work. And I see the sunrises. And a lot of times I'll show them a picture of the sunrise, and it's like, I didn't know. Mm-hmm. But I see the sunrise. And they, one year Carla did this just amazing thing. This was pretty early on, late 90s, early 2000s. She's a gallery owner. Gallery owner, yeah, Carla Massoni. We've been in a partnership for 20, it'll be 27 years next year. It's a very long time for artists in a gallery to be together. Yeah. Um, and, and I trust Carla implicitly with my work and my reputation. She's a wonderful, wonderful person. She gave a, rep, a, a reception for watermen only and their wives and their kids and aunts and uncles and whoever else came along. And it was one hell of a time. I mean, it was just all watermen. And we had to shoo them in off the sidewalk because the gallery's not their normal venue. It's not their normal place to go visit. Um, and once inside, though, and they could just see pictures of themselves at work and other people at work and start telling stories about each other or about it, days and whatnot, it, it, it was very, and it still is very valuable to me that the work meant that much to them. Once they got in and passed their initial reticence, 
that they could relate to it, that they could, could see that I got it right. I didn't change anything. I didn't take anybody off the boat, though sometimes I threaten, you know, you piss me off, I'm going to paint you out of the picture. But uh, I've only done that to log canoe people, <laughs> not, not watermen. So they are bemused, is a good word, at what I shoot pictures of while they're working. But you also have to remember a lot of these men and their families don't have pictures of them, what they're doing. So when I'm done, I print up four or five good photographs wow. of them at work to put in their scrapbooks or to frame and put on their walls so when their grandparents, and they can tell their grandchildren, this is what it was, you know, it's changed, but this is what we did, this is what I did. Uh, and that means a lot to me. And I probably give away between forty-five dollars and $50,000 worth of paintings a year to oh. families whose brothers passed away or a father. Um, it's, or it's another way I can say thank you. It's an industry that's in decline in terms of the numbers of people doing it, right? It's changing. I, I don't like the word decline. Okay. It's, it's, it's changing. Climate change. We have fish in the upper end of the bay right now that normally are South Carolina south fish, like pompano, mm. Spanish mackerel. I mean, a lot of different kinds of fish right now. So through regulations, it's changing. And you have to remember, and this is the hardest thing that people like in the Chesapeake Bay Foundation have a hard time remembering. Things come and go in cycles. There used to be bluefish in the bay 25, 30 years ago that just, they were huge. Rockfish moved in, the bluefish moved out. The fishery changed, the market changed. Mm. The pressures on the market changed. So I don't like the word decline. Uh, it's changing. Now, you also have to realize that the average age for, let's say, an oysterman is like 65 to 70, 75, 80 years old. Whoa. Yeah, there are not a lot of young people in this business. I guess maybe that's more what it meant. Like, it, does it seem like there are fewer watermen, like there's fewer people oh, yeah. in the industry? Okay. Yeah, Rock Hall and Oyster Season used to be both rafted out from the docks. And, and I only know this from 1995. To now, when you talk to the guys who grew up here, Rock Hall used to send out eight or nine 18 wheelers a day of seafood. Mm. There's no, nobody does that anymore. I mean, it's all done in pickup trucks. The oh, buyers are gone. The shucking houses are gone. Is it because like the commercial players are running the game? No, it's 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 the resources. Mm. There's a lot of there's a lot of pressure on on crab on fish. And the bigger picture is the whole East Coast, for instance, on rockfish. I mean, every state has a quota. Rockfish swim up into the Chesapeake Bay to spawn. It's one of the few major spawning areas for the whole East Coast. Mm. So the spotlight's on the Chesapeake Bay and how many fish can we afford to lose out of the Chesapeake Bay to the commercial fishery? Uh, so it's always going up, and, well, it always goes down. You never get back what you lost to a regulation. It's a whole other weird little pressure in that. The feds or the state never gives back what you lost through a regulation. And I said earlier, things come and go. Fish come and all of a sudden they're all over the place. And then they go away. 
oysters. God, we've got the last two, three years, just exceptional natural recruitment, which means oysters propagating themselves. And then there's also the enhancement um, through buying spat on, on shell and planting. But it's been a hell of a year this year. People have been getting their limits within a... You're allowed two limits on a boat, depending on the gear type. Hand tongs, 10 bushels per, lim per license, two licenses a boat. Um, it's the same way, I think, for power dredging. Patent tong is 12. Skipjacks get 100 a day. I've been power dredging and I've been hand tonging and we have gotten our limits within an hour, hour and a half, 20 bushels. Hmm. I can remember days 10 years ago where we pounded for eight, nine hours for five bushels. So this is what I mean. It comes and it goes. Well, the Chesapeake Bay Foundation has the ear of a one-party legislature it's Democrat Senate, Democrat House in Maryland. It makes it very hard to find any kind of balance. And the Bay Foundation has so much, has a quasi-governmental reputation that they feel they can micromanage Mother Nature. <laughs> Good fucking luck with that. Mm. Just, and they want to do it through the legislature. They don't want to do it through regulations, which can be retrofitted to situations that allow for more bushels to be taken or a closure someplace and an opening in another place. And that's the biggest problem. These groups who don't really, I've had, and I'm an amateur and I have my own fishing license and I have my, I pay my oyster surcharge every year because I believe if I don't have a financial dog in the fight when I go to advocate in the legislature or when I write an article, I'm an outsider looking in. And I am still that, because I don't depend on it for a living. But I have made commitments to this business in a way that um, I'm understood on the docks now. People remember me for things that I've written about clamming or, or dumbass things that just have been written. And the public doesn't know. There's no venue for Waterman to educate people like the Bay Foundation has through its organization. I convinced, I didn't have to convince him much. He was the most recent editor for Kent County News, Dan DeVilio. I said, Waterman need a column, not just a letter to the editor, not just a 400-word limit. We need a column, which is 600 words. And then we call it The View from the Washboards, and I started it. And any Waterman is welcome to write an opinion about what he's experiencing in the commercial seafood business. And as long as there's not a plethora of vulgarity and personal attacks and whatnot, it'll get printed. And it's one of those venues that they didn't have. And I'm surprised for many years that you could write letters to the Maryland Gazette, the Waterman's Gazette. That's their newspaper, but that's preaching to the choir. Mm. You're, you're telling people things that they already know. You've got to tell the public who are members of these organizations, these foundations and associations. You need to have your people more responsible. You can't be slacktivists. That means you pay your dues and you walk away and you trust that organization, foundation, association to do the right thing. And no, you can't walk away. You got to pay attention to who they're affecting and what they're doing. Um, it's I, I am 
quite a layman with with this stuff like do you have an example of sort of like how the watermen are hamstrung kind of like by that the legislation like okay here's a good example okay i'm all right so god don't forget it's, it's over 10 years ago that oyster sanctuaries were created and it was something done through what's called the oyster advisory commission created by governor o'malley um because he really wanted to see oysters grown like crabs, I mean clams, um, which is an impossibility, but I, I digress there. So sanctuaries were created in a way where they just drew straight lines across oyster bars, line of sight things, and oyster bars aren't straight line of sight things. And they took away public fishery bottom. So they, they literally confiscated acres and acres of oyster bottom. Now, some of these were also part and parcel earlier ideas about sanctuary. Some of them were sanctuary. Some of them were what were called rotational opening and closing. These are bars that the industry and the state would plant on and then close and then open it like two years later and harvest and then close again and plant. Mm. A good system. We'd like to get them to bring it back. Well, that... Governor O'Malley and his group in the DNR did away with that. It's unfortunate. Virginia takes, took it on and said, what's the matter with you guys? This system works. Yeah, it works. We know, but we can't do it. We're trying to get it back. So sanctuaries, they are a sore point. And again, this goes to an earlier point. I said, more oysters in the bay is good for the bay. But we don't know how well they're performing because they planted for five years, there's no baseline. Not, not until recently have they stopped planting on them so we can see how well they're doing. What we would like, and there are sanctuaries that are not actively managed, so they're not planting on them, they're not cleaning them, they're just letting them be. Hmm. They took this bottom away, and they're just letting them be. Fingers crossed that the oysters are natural recruiting and that they're expanding. That wasn't the original purpose for sanctuaries. They were created to be, quote unquote, breeder reactors for oysters, where you could come in and you could gather them up and then you go plant them on other sanctuaries. You could plant them on other bars that were gonna be opened and closed. They were supposed to be like the bank that you could come to and make withdrawals, but keep planting on. Well, the Bay Foundation got a hold of that idea, and it was like, no, we think these should be habitat for fish and for other marine wildlife and everything. Well, you just screwed several thousand people out of, out of a business here. It has to be scaled down. That goes into your wording about decline. So we got this idea on one sanctuary. It was proposed through the Oyster Advisory Commission, and it's it is a commission that hands down ideas on a consensus basis. 72 to 75% have to agree to the idea. And then it goes to the legislature. Bay Foundation is a member, environmentalists, ecologists, uh, sport fishing groups, real estate people, biologists, scientists, it's, it's, it's it's gotten 60-40 in favor of the industry now, but it used to be way out of whack for the environmentalists. 
Um, so much so that they let the Corps of Engineers come in and dump huge pieces of, gra of, of granite on these sanctuaries, which nobody will ever be able to get back into to work because the damn stuff is so big it destroys your gear. Mm. So we came up with this idea for sanctuaries that are not being actively managed. And the Chester River was the one that was proposed. So around the sanctuary, you create four zones, A, B, C, and D, and you start planting on all four of these zones, okay? And you do this for two or three years. Then you open zone A to harvesting for one season or a limited season of harvesting. All the while that they're planting on these four zones, planting also in the heart of the sanctuary, okay? So everybody's winning on this situation so far. So you harvest zone A and you close it. Next year, you plant on zone A, but you open zone B and you do this rotationally. So now there's oyster bar on the Chester River that you can harvest. The, the guys here don't have to go all the way down to Hooper's Island, Elliot's Island, all the way down to Deal to harvest oysters. They can harvest out of Long Cove or Skinner's Neck or Rock Hall which is what they used to do when I was here, when I moved here in 95. Those bars are, are closed. This proposal went through months of arguing and wrangling and everything, and it became what was called the straw man proposal from the OAC to the legislature to actively manage sanctuaries. It was a win-win for everybody. Sanctuaries got oysters. The watermen got oysters. The river had oysters for filtering. And there's a whole other neat little factoid involved in that. The past president, speaker in the Senate, Mr. Bush, did not like this um, idea, nor did the House. I forget who the speaker in the House was at the time. So it got defeated. Not only did it get defeated, the bill became, let's not allow any active management in any sanctuary, ever, regardless of the fact that many of these sanctuaries don't see any management at all. So it was a loss loss for everybody. But now it's a law. And that happened because the Chesapeake Bay Foundation got a wild hair up their nether regions about this, even though they were part and parcel of the consensus process in the Oyster Advisory Commission. And it was going to become regulation. They went to the state for legislation and made a law that prevents any type of management, active management in a sanctuary. So think, this goes to your earlier question. This is case in point about how they lost. And this is how the politics work. And the Chesapeake Bay Foundation, when they testify, it's like Moses came down from the mountain and all of other complaints and fears are cut in stone based on 50 gallons a day. We, we, we missed that part of the earlier interview. All these regulations and all these fears are based on computer-generated or generated in perfect circumstances facts about oysters and how they filter water. Hmm. So recently, we've been planting on some bars in the Chester River, and we finally got 
to a point where we said, we want to open these bars. We haven't been able to harvest them, but we want to, we want to open them. This year, they opened hand-tong bars and dive bars down at the, at the lower end of the river, below the pollution line. And some boats came up to hand-tong. Some boats came up and, and they had divers, probably the most efficient way to oyster. And I don't know, I don't think that there were 40 or 50 boats. I think that the time that I went down, um, probably 10 boats at the most. Um, so. so do you need... Is it about educating the public or like getting in the ear of some of the legislators or an organization? Both. Or, yeah. Both. We need to educate the public to go to their legislators and say, hey, what are you doing here? Um, but the legislators, they don't care. I can't tell you how many times I've been at, at, at a hearing. Legislators who are Chesapeake Bay, that border, their districts are on the bay. They listen. Some of them kind of want to go to aquaculture, but they don't understand the, the dynamic there. Most of the anti-commercial fishing legislation in the state legislature for Maryland comes out of Montgomery County, which doesn't even have shoreline on the Chesapeake mm. Bay. But it is one of the most polluting counties in Maryland for watersheds because of their development and their highways and the way. That, it's, it's an odd, weird little thing. But most of that legislation that's anti-commercial fishing, the Bay Foundation goes to the Montgomery County legislators and say, can we get you to sponsor a bill to stop this? So um, it's, it, is, it, just, it really boils down to education. There's a great book on, it's called How to Think by Tom Nichols. Wonderful book about, we, we all have to become citizen scientists. And I have been studying oysters for years and years and years. And I understand, I'm able to articulate the waterman's concerns about the ignorance on the part of the public and legislators. I've had more oysters through my hands, I guarantee you, than any oyster specialist in the Chesapeake Bay Foundation. And yet they go to the legislature and they listen and they're heard and laws are passed, instead of working through the Oyster Advisory Commission and going to the DNR, which has a seat on the commission, and saying, look, can we make this regulation? I mean, we have a consensus of opinion. No. They, they want to go and make a law out of it. I've got a lot more in my head here, but if at any point you're like, it's getting late, I need this guy out of my house, it won't hurt my feelings if you... Not to worry. If you tell me, okay, okay. Um, I can talk on this for hours. All right, no, I love it. Um, you pick one painting and I can talk on it for just hours. I love it. And <laughs> I, I sometimes, and I'll come back to this later, but I sometimes have trouble getting my thoughts out of my head. So this will be, watch me fumble my way through a giant thought here. Um Normally, I actually like everything is political in a sense, but I, I tend to stay away from like talking about left right politics. I never really talk about COVID because you could turn oh, on the good. TV and see that, and like I'm just always bored. What with a it. nightmare! Yeah, um, but I am going to talk about my own politics for a second because it's going to lead into my bigger thought. Um, I became politically aware, so I'm 35. Um, I became politically aware and I guess like started to become radicalized during um, the Bush presidency, the second Bush president, the, the second George Bush. Um, that's when I was in high school. 9-11 was when I was in 10th grade. And 
I think it's fair to say at the time I was like, and probably still am like fairly far left politically. Um, and, and I can see as everyone can, that we are like really in the midst of a culture war here in our country. In some ways it kind of just sort of exists in the ether of like the internet because I'll, I'll go to places, I don't know, that are maybe deemed dangerous or I'll, I'll go to places that people are typecast a certain way on both sides of the political spectrum. And like, it's very not, not so that way. So that's why I say it sort of exists in the like ether of the internet. And Oh, it's part and parcel of the internet. Yeah, for sure. Um, and so the more I've done this and the more I've traveled and the more I've talked to people, the more I'm starting to see how um, it's often working class, blue collar people with like specialized labor that is very important and has always historically been important to this country that often get typecast as backwards or ultra conservative or uh, ignorant. Um, and because of that, despite being the party that's really supposed to be like the party of, of labor and the people, I'm seeing how like at least in like the media, the left like often looks down on those people um, and therefore doesn't necessarily care for their plight. Hopefully what I'm saying makes sense. So I, I'm wondering if maybe there isn't enough knowledge about what the work that the watermen are doing um, due to like an ignorance about what their actual job entails, but also maybe because like they're considered like, oh, they're laborers, they're, they're blue collar workers, they're not as educated. Um, I don't know if you ever, if, if, if you've ever like felt that there's like a, an idea about that. You know, I graduated from the University of Colorado in 1973. Um, and I'm military brat and I hated the war in Vietnam. Um, I was very political in, in high school, underground newspaper, SDS. Um, I didn't like the war because I saw classes of Air Force Academy cadets where my father taught going off to fight in a war with their hands tied and many of them being killed. Um, I was a greenskeeper at the golf course there and part of that was taking care of the cemeteries and digging graves. So I, I, I wow. did not like this war. Um, and to have McNamara years later backtrack on how bad the war was while he did what he did. Um, I've always been on the side of the, um, you had mentioned it earlier, the underdogs, um, you know, Native Americans, the first people, mm -hmm. um, the Confederacy, you know, which is wildly unpopular idea, but, um, and, and other groups, which would probably get me in a lot of trouble for saying it, so I'm not going to, but very political. Um, you know, Republicans don't want labor unions. The left needs labor unions. So, I mean, it's it's not as clean as we would like it to be. I remember a time on Tillman Island. I was down there with Phyllis and, and our three children. We were at Dogwood Harbor, and it was in the summer, and, and the guys, late summer, because the guys with the skipjacks are starting to slush the masts and go through the boats and get them ready for oystering. And there was a couple from New Jersey there, and 
I wanted to push this guy in the water after listening to him for about half an hour. He was racially baiting one of the skipjack guys. Mm. And, and they have strong opinions. Okay. And, and he was doing it in such a way to get him to say these, these mildly ignorant things. Um, and just, I could just see him just kind of having fun at this waterman's expense. And, and I really, I didn't do anything. If it wasn't for Phyllis and the kids, I might have said something to the guy and his wife. And just, but New Jersey license plates, I, I, he was just down there playing to this idea that these people are half-educated or ill-educated or they're stuck in the 1950s or something. Um, their focus on the world is from the shore to the dock to the water. Hmm. And on shore, their focus is their families and their yeah. market. Okay? And that, that is an incredibly empirical source of knowledge. Their hands-on knowledge is huge compared to these people who go to college and can lecture you about oysters. Nah, I mean, if you don't put these two together, you don't have a complete picture. And that's the problem with the internet right now. You can go and find your comfortable zone of shared opinions, siloed information. And you can also say, well, I don't just go to one site, I can go to five or 10. And they'll also say the same thing. Do you go visit another website that you don't want to hear things from just to give a good listen to? Very few people do that. So this, this ability to make watermen as, as ignorant intellectually or, or academically, there's a book by a guy named Dobbs called The Great Gulf, and it's the Gulf of Maine. And the Great Gulf is also the gulf between lobstermen and scientists, mm. lobstermen and environmentalists. And he talks about how they came together to work on regulations to not only protect, but also ensure the fishery. We don't have that here. We, we, we're butting heads. Uh, there is, it's kind of weird. When I first got here, anytime a scientist said something about oysters or fish or crabs, a waterman would say, boy, I'd like to see him try to make a living on what he knew, um, which is a pretty valid fact, but they didn't trust anything the scientists had to say because they could always find uh, sometimes a good reason and other times uh, just a half-assed reason why they weren't going to trust it or believe it. It doesn't help every year when the go when the... The government, the state says, we're going to have a great, and it's the state of Virginia that does the crab survey, not Maryland, for, for the bay. And the state of Virginia says, you're going to have a killer year. <laughs> Last year was, was pretty tight, and it was going to be a killer year. The gulf between what these men know and the people who have the ear of the legislature and the public is huge. And it's, there are some watermen now who are starting to speak up more often and are very articulate and read as much as I read and if not more about oysters and things. So when they make their case, they make a very solid case using science, not cherry-picked. And sometimes they say things that most watermen don't want to hear. I do that a lot. But they got to hear it. You got to, there has to be the middle of the table and there is no middle of the table. I think a good comparison to the point that I was thinking of is um, 
is West Virginia. And I think if you just say West Virginia, probably a lot of people immediately, your brain's making connections and you're having thoughts about who's living there. So I think probably a lot of people would be surprised to know that it's a democratic state because it's a union state. It's a mining state. And the mining unions were very important in protecting the workers. Coal miners just told Mr. Manchin, their senator, why did you not go for this Build Back Better vote? Because we need that. And so, this, yeah, so what I was thinking of was I think um, one of the ways that Trump was able to use like populism to get uh, elected was that he talked about those people. And I remember very specifically, you can go and listen to this, like, and, and then I'll, I'll drop the politics, but I think it's related. I remember, listen, I, I don't, I don't want pollution. I don't want environmental degradation. I don't want global warming. And, and I remember right before that election, Hillary Clinton went and said like, we're, we're going to move away from coal. And okay, but if there are entire communities in the state that are built upon that and you're not offering those people an alternative, right. then they're completely fucked and they're not going to vote for you. Right. This is like the lumber industry in the Pacific Northwest. Right. But instead, we don't look at it that way. We look at those people as, oh, they must not be voting for her because they're Republicans or they're misogynists or they're this or that. Oh, yeah. And it's like, no, you're just not caring about the labor. And so I guess I may be fearful of if we're legislating out the watermen that, like, will people care? So that's a good point. Mr. Francho wants to do away with the public fishery. Just the oystery part, okay? So for six months out of the year, because it's from the 1st of October till the end of March that you can oyster, you have created a whole new class of unemployed people in the dead of winter. Mm -hmm. What are you going to do for them? What are you going to do for the coal miners that you've just shut down? What are you going to do for the lumber mills and everything that you just shut down? Tom Horton is a great writer about the Chesapeake Bay. He and I butt heads a lot. But Tom has a, a bigger perspective. And it's almost like the ivory tower where it's an unassailable position. He's right. And he put it all into a very short, succinct sentence. If you want to save the bay, move away. Mm. Now, if you're not willing to move away, how do you moderate your impact where you live, what you do, how do you moderate that on the bay? Are you willing to make sacrifices? Are you willing to, I, I keep getting, every year they want to come and, and resurface my asphalt driveway and it's got huge cracks in it and I don't care. I'd like to have the money to tear it all out and put gravel in, make it a percolating surface, a pervious surface. How do you moderate, you know? We planted trees in our backyard, native trees. Um, I mean, there are ways that we can all do this. The bay is suffering a death of a thousand cuts every day. The commercial fishery is suffering because of that, a death of a thousand cuts every day. And we don't have the balls in the legislature to do things about it. Mm. They're all so interconnected. And you talked about the rightness of issues. It doesn't mean anything in any legislature. It's the money. Mm. How much money can I get from you to run for office again? You know, well, watermen don't, they're not, a, we have a lobbyist. 
um, and I'm not it. I'm not a paid lobbyist, but I am an advocate for them. But we don't have the deep funds. We don't have a membership like the Bay Foundation has or Coastal Conservation, which is a national organization. And when they want to go to the legislature, they go into the national trust, deep pockets, and bring up money to support campaigns with. We, we can't do that. Everything is always evolving. And sometimes I wonder, like, everyone kind of like, not everyone, but I generalize a lot. Often when people sort of come of age, as I guess I am now, they look at the upcoming generation as like not as great as theirs or the, or the ones that came before them. And so sometimes I wonder, like, am I just looking at like disappearing things, industries, skills, art forms, and is it just in a sense, a natural part of like society's evolution and progression. Maybe a strange analogy, but like when the internet came around, I'm sure there were people who were like, this won't last. And now it's like, right. But (laughs) now it's like the most ubiquitous, like, Oh yeah. But so I guess the point I'm going to is like, I I, I was thinking in, in crafting some of these questions and we've addressed a lot of it so far, but like what is lost if this industry is changing or as it's like you said, people will eventually be aged out. And if there's not a workforce behind them, that's going to take over the the jobs and the industry is going away. Um, I, I think in something that's added that we lose and you talk about people out of work, that's a dangerous thing for society, but we're also heading into a place where people need something to belong to and they don't often when you see these awful situations like school shooters and stuff, they're loners that like could have used a group to belong to or martial arts or whatever it is. I don't know. But interesting you say that. I think we also lose out. And then I'll, I'll wrap this thought. Um, we this is in, in a sense, a sense like specialized labor. These men are important because not everybody's doing what they're doing. So they're important to their community. They're important if you want to eat seafood. Um, and I think there's like a certain level of esteem that comes with that. If you want to make boats, if you want to make hardware, if you want to hydraulics, I mean, this is not an industry that you can just take a scalpel and cut out and not affect anybody else. There's right. A, and Obama said it. There's a value chain from a business that runs back through the community. And so who's employing? more and more people is almost like bureaucracy and civil service. And like, I'll punch up to myself. I, I teach and I think that's very noble. Um, oh, and, I come from generations of teachers. I agree with you a hundred percent. Right. Um, but, and, and maybe people disagree with me. Like, I don't think it's difficult to sort of like learn the craft of teaching, but I guess with civil service jobs, I think that there there are elements of them where people feel good about it. But there's a lot of jobs where people just sit behind a computer and... and they're filling a seat for eight hours a day and right. they're drawing down a salary and a pension and health benefits. And yet what they do impacts other people. And that's... But, but if... I mean, I'm a history student. <laughs> you go back all the way to the Romans. They were bureaucrats changing laws, doing things, and they didn't care how it affected people because they got their money, they got their livelihood, they got their villas. It's, it's, think about this, and, and this was a grim realization for me. Nathaniel Philbrick, great writer, 
wrote a book about the pilgrims and the Mayflower, okay? And, and, and I heartily recommend this book, along with Grant by Chernow and John Adams by, what's his name? McCulloch. Okay. My point in this was that making money, that mercenary part, that, that mercantile part is part and parcel of, of who we are as a mm. country. Okay, we came here to find gold. They came to the Chesapeake to find gold. Well, when we couldn't find gold, it became lumber, and then it became tobacco. But it was here to find money. The idea of religious freedom was, was tacked on to the fact that we're going to support you and all these people that want to be pilgrims to go to Massachusetts to found a colony for religious freedoms. But you owe us because we're paying your trip over there. You have to find some way to give us money back. Okay, pay us back for our investment. Extrapolate that up to the American Revolution. Washington and Steuben, Steuben are at Valley Forge. It's freaking cold. They got to cut trees down. They need hand axes, okay? Mm. So they go to the metallurgy industry in the United, in that country at the time, not the United States, but the colonies, and said, we need hand axes. So these guys said, yeah, sure, we'll make you hundreds of hand axes. Well, when it came time to put the steel edge in the soft iron of the axe head, they kept the steel and didn't think twice about it. Mm. So they sent these axes off to these guys in the frozen woods around Valley Forge to chop down trees that just did nothing but dent. They didn't cut the trees down. You know, it's in our culture, and it's not a pretty spot. It's, it's not a, a good thing to realize that that's, that's, that's in our blood. That's, we were founded on this shit. It's, it's woven in there. You can't make good tar without getting any on you. Mm. You know, it's, it's, it's depressing. I'm, I, I studied martial arts for years, Japanese swords specifically, oh, cool. and, and the Buddhist, the Zen Buddhist philosophy that went along with the samurai and everything. And to know and not to act is not to know, period. And it depends on the citizenry in this country to know. And right now, if what you're knowing comes from four or five like-minded, siloed pieces of information, you don't know. And then every time you open your mouth, you hurt other people. Um, we got it. We have to learn. And it drives me nuts, this polarization. And it's not just in the last 10 years. It goes way, way, way back, way back even before Newt Gingrich wasted the Republicans owning the majority in the House and the Senate. Um, but being, having studied Buddhism, we are all on this, this voyage to become better human beings, period. And, and if we're not doing that, then we're wasting this life. Uh, I mean, I've done a lot of shit that I, I, can, I, I can kind of regret, mm. But if I go back in time and change those things, I'm not where I am now, and I'm right. not who I am right now. So I'm just trying to do better. And I like the underdog. Um, so I advocate for the waterman. Um, and, and I have the time. I can do that for them. And they trust me to do that for them. They trust me to do that with my paintings and my lectures and my photographs and, and the columns that I write. It's, and I'm... And I'm Grateful for that trust. Mm. I am. 
Um, I can't tell you how many times I've been on a dock and I've met watermen that I don't know. And the guy that I've been oystering or, or crabbing or fishing with goes, yeah, this is Mark Costello. And he goes, oh, you're the guy that writes those things. Cool. But they know that and they like that. But the people that I'm aiming it at, I so very rarely ever hear from them. I didn't know. If I had known, what can I do? Who can I write? I very rarely ever hear that. Hmm. As I was like fumbling my way through that last point, I realized I could have been way more concise. But I guess the point that I was making was that I'm just sort of fearful of a society in which people don't feel like they belong or have a purpose. I think that's a dangerous thing. Um, And getting rid of like specialized jobs, I think, contributes to that. But... um, I'm actually, this is sort of perfect as we pause here. You sent, you had me look through your sketchbook and you have, there's a, first of all, it's freaking unreal how lifelike your pictures are. Um, <laughs> but there's like a, there's, I've been at this a long time. Yeah. <laughs> there, there's a barn here. Um, I, I, again, I'm new to the area cause I'm not, I'm not from the area, but my dad's new to the area. So I don't know all the street names, but he's over by the Brampton Inn and there's like the main road that takes you to the roundabout that brings you to High Street over by like Royal Farms. Yeah. Um, Route 20. That's the one that'll take you out to Rock Hall. Goes by the Brampton Inn. Yes. But branching off of that, if you're heading towards High Street, towards that traffic circle, there's a road. And Flatland. Yes. And there is an abandoned barn there. Yeah. Uh, that's so beautiful and creepy at the same time. And I'm doing this project. I'm actually, I hope I can take your picture later with uh, disposable cameras. And I went there recently. And as I got nearer to it, I, it sounds so stupid, but I almost heard like a whispering, like you'd hear like a horror movie. It's probably the wind, but just like a shh. And then I looked up and there's this giant turkey vulture looking down on me from inside of this like rotted out barn and I'm like I'm getting the hell out of here before something weird happens um, but it's, it, it's leading me a lot me, of cultural baggage to <laughs> yeah, <laughs> probably a, some trauma in there somewhere but um, it, it's leading me to unpin what you brought up before in which you said you've, you've been to all these incredible places Oman I'm insanely jealous that you got to go there um, but you said this is your favorite place oh yeah why I mean, I've been a lot of places. I've been to India a lot, lived in Burma, Japan. My youngest brother was born there. I loved Finland. I got and I got to go hall sailing on a small lake in Finland. It just just three or four of us in a, in a little boat. It was fun. You know, and I lived in West Michigan for 12 years. I lived in Colorado for 12 years. Um, I've seen a lot of places in the world, seen a lot of incredible poverty, um, lack of respect for the human life. Um, here though, you know, I never thought I'd live someplace where it's so freaking flat. Mm. I've lived in the mountains, you know, and I love the mountains. My wife, Phyllis, just loves the mountains. There is something here. And Chestertown is an odd place. (sighs) Back in the late 60s, early 70s, the hippies used to, like, they'd make, a, they'd make a, uh, an A-frame out of their elbows on a map of the country and their hands together at the top, and they would suspend this magical crystal, quote-unquote. 
on a string and it would be like a Ouija board. And, and, you know, and wherever this crystal ended up when it stopped swinging, even if it wasn't point, you know, supposedly it wasn't going to point vertically, you know, mm. perpendicular to the surface. If it pointed someplace, that's where you should live. <laughs> the feng shui of the crystal mm. in the sixties, you know, Jesus, what a bunch of crap at <laughs> that time. Oh my God. But I do understand the motivation of wanting to have a sub conscious affinity to some place. And I have it here. I mean, I liked West Michigan, and I loved it. Um, that's where I learned how to sail boats. It's where I began my affinity for water. I have thousands of photographs of, of a beach on, on Lake Michigan. I used to walk it, and Phyllis and I would ski it and walk it all, all year long of, of water. Um, and it was always a mystery to me. And, but I was more interested in painting boats, the objects around water. And I got older, all right? And I've been living here for around 27 years now. Um, there is a lot to getting older. There is a lot to settling down someplace. There is a lot to... The phrase for the most recent show that we had at, at Carla Masoni's gallery, the Carencia, the place where you are the most yourself, mm. that's, that's here. Okay? And I've done all kinds of jobs where I've worked with my hands and I've worked with other people, but not like this, not with these watermen. Um, and I never painted people before. I, I, I figured it this way. If there's a boat in my picture, a painting, the human presence is implied. Because mm -hmm. I hated drawing people and I hated painting. Oh, my God. I hated life drawing classes in college so much that I would just walk out. Um, so there's so much here. When we walk the dog two, three times a day here, I take a camera with me. Through the whole part of the main course of the pandemic, I kept like a photo, uh, it's, it's like a diary of photographs of the skies and the trees and the seasons as they changed and people's flowers in their yards and everything. And I still do it. I, I always have a camera with me. Um, and my mom was a professional photographer. My father was a photographer for the military and for geog geography and all of that. Um, here is where so many things that I am kind of dovetailed and became closer knit, um, more in, inextricably interwoven. Mm. Um, and I'm older, you know, I don't want to go anyplace new. I, I like this place. Most of my friends are people who are born and bred here. And they bring a whole dynamic to the conversation and to what you're doing. I was talking to Johnny Kinneman. He's a boat builder on Tillman Island. And we've gotten to be very close over the last two or three years. He's 85 years old. He and his son are building boats. They've probably built over 350 boats, work boats. And we had this conversation about something that happened on the island the last time I was down there. And he was talking about somebody and he said, you know, she's a wrap and a half short. <laughs> Which means not quite all there. Okay. Because a wrap and a half is the line on the boat, wrap around the cleat, you know, and a half to cinch it. And she's a wrap and a half short. <laughs> and it's that kind of stuff that makes my paintings they animate them for me. Andrew Wyeth said, if you do this long enough, you can start to tell jokes and stories to yourself in your paintings. 
you become fluent in the language of the paint. And I'm almost there. Mm. I'm almost there. I, I mean, I've this last show, this but we just it's on till the end of the December here in another week. It was a huge leap forward as a body of work. Um, and people responded. I don't know why, uh, but the reaction was insane. Better than we've, than we've really truly ever had in the 27 years that we've been artist gallery. So this is where I, you know, and I was so bummed out that when our kids had children, our youngest daughter, the, her children's born in Annapolis, because the hospitals and the, and the wards on the eastern shore closed down. I wanted kids born and bred on this, on, born and raised on this shore. Because if you're not, you're not from here, no matter how much time you spend here. It, Chestertown is having trouble keeping young people, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'll tell you, Michael Buckley, I don't know. Do you know him? He I does voices so. on the Chesapeake. Uh, oh, okay. I've heard my dad reference it. Okay. He asked me if I would be willing to be interviewed by two kids in, at Washington College in the program. I said, yeah, sure. Um, another chance to just talk about this place that I love so much and the people in it. And one of them asked me, do watermen like, do watermen value what you do? What do your paintings mean to them? And the story was about a waterman named Willie Beck. And, and with these, anybody's listening to this in Rock Hall, they're going to get, they're going to like this story because it's so classically Willie Beck. And he passed away a few years ago. He's in Maggie's, which is a waterman's bar in Rock Hall. And somebody throws open the back door and runs in and says, Willie, your house is on fire. And he looks at him and he goes, hey, fuck you, it's not on fire. He goes, no, it's on fire. And he goes, oh, bullshit, it's not on fire. Fuck you. He goes, Willie, the fire chief and the police chief are at your house. It's on fire. And he goes, ah, God damn it. So he goes, he gets in his truck, he drives. Sure as shit, his house is on fire when he gets there. There's fire trucks there, the police chief's there, the fire chief's there. And Willie walks right past the police line and goes into the house. And he takes his painting off the wall. And I referenced this earlier of him and his father oystering on the Chester River. He takes it off the wall and he walks out of the house and he looks at the fire chief and he goes, you can let the bitch burn. <laughs> Now that answered the question. I mean, do that's my, legendary. That do is. my paintings mean anything to these to these people that I give them to, or yeah. you know, or let them have for next to nothing? The other question goes to what you had just said about young people in Chestertown. So the other student asked me, "So do kids graduating from high school in Kent County have a chance to work on the water?" And I said, "Very rarely, um, mainly because if you're not born into a waterman's family." you're going to have to go to the bank and get a loan for $100,000 for a boat to be able to do a basic trot line for crabbing. What bank is going to loan a kid out of high school $100,000 to go into a business where that bank and everybody that works in it reads constantly about how this is a dying industry and the resources aren't there and the watermen are raping the bay for oysters? And I mean, what bank's going to loan this kid this money? So now he's got to scramble to find a job. And a lot of jobs in Kent County are with contractors. And it was a booming industry in the beginning of the pandemic because people are home and they want, now they can do improvements on the house that they're living in because they're not going anywhere and they've got this money. And contractors have done very well in the last two, three years because of the pandemic for starters. 
Also because a lot of people retire to Chestertown mm. and they're buying up these houses at insane prices right now and then remodeling them. So you've got that dynamic at work. And years ago, Chestertown was like number one on Times Magazine's list of places to retire. Oh. So think about the dynamic that is moving here to retire. They're not bringing jobs with them. They're bringing fixed incomes. And they're not really investing in the community or in businesses for which these kids can have jobs. It, it, it's tight. It's, it's real tight. Mm. 10, 15 years ago, watermen were telling their kids, don't get in this business because the press was saying, and a lot of watermen were saying, this business won't last 10 years. And it's still here. I was out oystering Friday last week out of Mount Vernon. Two hours to get there. I leave here at quarter to four in the morning. Meet him at the dock. We go out and oyster. We had our limit in an hour and 15 minutes. All right, 20 bushels. There must have been 50, 60 boats, two different gear types out there oystering. I spent more time driving than I did oystering that day. Hmm. And I work. I call. I call fish. I call crabs. I call oysters. That's, that's what I do on the boat. They want me to run their gear, and I say, nope, nope. You know, that's why they call hand tongs stupid sticks or widow makers. <laughs> I'll watch you guys do that, but I'll call your oysters for you. <laughs> My little, um, I guess, happy spot here is... If you go up, I guess it's Morgneck, there's a blue bridge. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And the, the, that pull out there? Yeah. So I uh, catfished up that creek and turtle potted up that creek. Okay, yeah. There's <clears throat> a, I guess it splits off from the Chester River. It's like a little yeah. tributary. Oh, yeah. And yeah, when the sun is setting. Oh, my God. The, the catfish are jumping out of there. Mm -hmm. But the sun sets below the tree line and there's the... The water forms a horseshoe there along the road. And right. You can come off, and the sun sets behind the tree line and just sets off in like orange and pink. But there are two houses tucked into the horseshoe. Right. And when the sun goes down, the light coming from the windows of those houses in the pitch black reflecting off the water. It's like through a, the houses. It's coming through the houses through the windows. It's like yeah. a storybook. Isn't it's it amazing? Unreal. And now you know one reason why I love to live here. Yeah. 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 But you see sunsets. I don't. I see sunrises. Watermen very rarely see sunsets oh. unless it's from their house or they're driving somewhere. Even driving down to like Turner's Creek out of Kennedyville, when they've got when they're getting ready to cut the winter wheat, so it's this gold color at sunrise. I've taken so many pictures of these fields. It's it's this is a beautiful place mm. to live. And there's a there's a double-edged sword here. I get to see things on the water that 95% of the people that live here don't get to see. Because one, they don't have a boat. Two, they don't get up at four o'clock in the morning to go down to the dock and just wait for the sun to come up and see and watch that whole change come about. This is a remarkably beautiful place. The bay, the rivers, the coves and guts. It, it truly is someplace worth painting, mm. worth photographing, worth drawing and writing about. And I get to do it two, three times a week. I married the right woman 40 <laughs> yeah. years ago. The second I married, this is our second marriage, but she let me quit driving heavy equipment in a sand mine when I was, we were living in West Michigan and said, look, you know, if you hate it so much, and there's a lot of union politics going, backstabbing and whatnot. 
why don't you just quit and just start doing your artwork full time? You know, and I, I come from a military family. The man earns the living. And it was like, I was kind of lost for a couple of weeks there. And then I figured out in the summer, I can go sailing for a couple hours every day with my buds. And in the winter, I can go cross-country skiing every day and still get six, seven, eight hours worth of artwork in every day. What a responsibility she gave mm. me. And thank God she did. I, you know, That's a keeper. I, <laughs> oh, God, yes. I, I am not able to do even what I'm doing now without her confidence and her faith and her consistency in being there for me all the time. It's beautiful. You know, and Carla Massoni has the same faith in my work all these years. Um, just a wonderful gallery and what a wonderful person to... It's not a business relationship. It's, it's, it's very close, very close. She protects me. She protects my work. You're not the easiest person to get a hold of. No. I'm actually... I'm patting myself on the back a little bit in, in, <laughs> that, in that I'm sitting across from you right now. Um, I believe so. I had seen your work and probably you could tell like topically through other episodes, I'm, I'm very interested in that. And then also just, it's beautiful. So I was like, I'd love to try to find him. Um, hasn't been too difficult contacting people around here. It's way harder in New York to do episodes because people have more of an attitude of like, a, of coolness. Um, and, you know, I'm not NPR or something big that, like... But I think on your website, the contact goes through, like, Carla in the gallery. Yeah, she, she screens everything. Okay. So, you know, I was kind of resigned to, like, I probably won't ever see him. <laughs> but I was in the bookstore. Every time we come here, we yeah, go to the bookstore. Tom Martin. It, one of my favorite people in this town. And one of the best used bookstores oh, God, yeah. freaking anywhere. Well, like, they always have good stuff. He is stuff. a bibliophile, truly. Yeah. yeah. So That's right. You got my contact information yes. from him. So yeah. when my girlfriend and I come here and we visit, every time we just load up on books, I'm, oh, yeah. I'm like 100 books behind at home. Like I can't catch oh, yeah. up, but I can't Where not go. Where do you go. see the studio? <laughs> okay, piles I'm of excited. Books. <laughs> so I was in there the, uh, two visits ago, and he's got this giant painting of yours, and I was like, hey... Um, my, my dad does like a little radio show here. I'll tell you about later. But, um, so I knew his name was Tom. I'm like, Hey Tom, I think that's Mark Castelli's painting. Right. And he's like, yes, yes. So I'm like, ah, I'm like, how do you get a hold of him? And he's like, Oh, one second. I'll write down his email, which well, now yeah, Tom will do that. Right. <laughs> Tom will do that. Which now I, now that you tell You're me very you, lucky, <laughs> I know. And I'm very lucky you responded. And, well. uh, I am. I won't say your email address, but now that you say that you study Japanese martial arts and sword fighting, it makes a lot of sense why your name on your email is your name. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> Look I guess him up. <laughs> <laughs> I was ten years old when I learned about him. He or, led the last samurai revolt in Japan. Yeah, that very made cool. Big impression on me. <laughs> um, I guess what I'm leading to is that. You don't put a spotlight on yourself at all. Um, no. it, you're a bit hard to track down. Uh, you did mention maybe not really being too thrilled with doing interviews. Yeah. And I wonder sort of like... No good has ever come from an interview. That was the line I wrote back to you. You did. Yeah. And so I, I wonder, I guess sort of, I don't know if it's too simple to say like why, but like wh how do you see yourself in like the ecosystem of like... Artists, maybe, and... I don't give a shit. 
Ah. I don't. I don't mix well with other artists. I don't seek out other artists. Um, I love that. I don't have enough time for that. Huh. You know, be honest with you, I'm, I'm just now figuring some shit out. And art for me is not a socializing thing. Mm. If you are well-addressed socially, you're not going to be an artist. You have to have, you have to be maladjusted somehow. You have to find in the act of creating art a safe place. Mm. So... I graduated from high school. I was four foot nine and I weighed 98 pounds. <laughs> Whoa. Think about that. So, and we moved every two years. I just had two younger brothers. That was my, and my mom and my dad. That was, that was consistent socializing. So artwork was where I was the safest, you know, and not until, and then we lived in Burma and you could go swimming in an old British Empire swimming club there that had competitions on Saturday. So we would go race. You know, and when I went to high school, when I moved to Colorado, I swam Junior Olympics. I swam in competition for 13 years. Um, but it was just very small groups of people that I was comfortable with. Mm. So I'm not, I'm, I love talking, obviously. <laughs> but I don't, I, I don't like, this is going to open me up to a whole wide range of people. But I value this opportunity because it's not like an interview where 99.9% of the people that have ever interviewed me have their own agenda and their own idea as to who I am and what I am. Mm. And, and there are so many errors, so many misrepresentations, so much hyperbole. Just, I don't have time for bullshit. I, I really don't. And so many interviews are just bullshit. Yeah. Um, I would much rather, if it was a magazine, my photographs, and I wrote captions for every one of these paintings in the last two shows. They're not captions. They're full-fledged essays about what's in those paintings. And the politics, maybe, or about the time of day, or about the gear, or the story that went with it. Um, and I'm, Carla, God bless her for asking me to do this. This is the beginnings of a book about my paintings and my drawings and I what I'm it. doing, you know. But I've been doing artwork all my life. 1979 to 1989, we are talking about the underdog. My brother was in the foreign office and his first tour was in Pakistan. The Russians invaded Afghanistan in 79 and didn't leave till 89. And I became fascinated with this war, these, this 16th century mentality fighting a 21st century technology and winning, and they still did. You know, what idiot would go to Afghanistan knowing that Alexander the Great had to marry his way through there? The Mughals had to fight their whole way through there. The Brits got thrown out of there several times, and then the Russians got thrown out of there, and we walked in like we were going to be able to do something. Yeah, flash oh, forward to 2002. No. <laughs> yes, a 20-year war. Yeah. We should never have gone in there. We should have sent people in there to take care of what we wanted to, but never gone in there like we did. But I did drawings and paintings about that war for 10 years. I focused on that. And the penultimate, I was a member of the Committee for Free Afghanistan to fight the Soviets. I mean, I did a lot of work. I worked with a guy to develop a comic book about basic health care and refugee camps based on Islam. You know, you don't wipe your butt with a piece of paper because you, the Quran is written on paper. 
I mean, this is that 16th century mentality, all right? And it's also the same group of people that ran this madras in the refugee camps when we left after the Russians left. And we created this whole fundamentalist group of people that became the Taliban. We should have been there pushing education and things, and we didn't. We left. But I was very invested in this thing. It's amazing how few books there were to read about Afghanistan in 1979, and by 1889, there was a bunch of them. People were even writing novels about this war. So in 1989, when the Soviets left, through a whole variety of odd connections, I got to do an exhibition of these drawings and paintings at CIA headquarters. Where does that work live now? Uh, it's, it's all scattered through the house. You know, and, and I've given away, every now and then I'll run into people who were involved and I'll give them a drawing or a painting. But but you don't care to have it, and I don't, I don't say this from a point of judgment, but no, you don't, don't care to have it that. cataloged no. somewhere. No, but that'll be part of the book. Yeah, it's got to be. Or fascination with Zen Buddhism and the Japanese and the sword and the samurai. I, hundreds and hundreds of drawings. I did a series of drawings called The Great Garden Stone Theft. Japanese... Rock gardens, then rock gardens, somebody's stealing them. You know, this is totally out of my head. I smoked a lot of pot back then. But uh, the, the depth to which I choose to give myself in order to draw and paint and, and be inspired by, uh, I, you know, we, that's how we raised our kids. Mm. Our middle daughter, Colleen, interested in dinosaurs. We have boxes of museum-quality dinosaur replicas and you know, in the garage. Um, I, I fostered this in our kids. I love research. Both my parents, again, you know, they were teachers. My grandparents were teachers. My great-grandfather was a teacher. Um, so it's, it's, what an amazing fucking place we live. Mm. I don't know if you watch anything on Prime. There's, a, there's this amazing science fiction series called The Expanse. Uh, I haven't seen it, but I, yeah, I've heard, definitely Read heard of it. Read the books first. Okay. okay. There's like eight volumes in it, and they're big, but they go fast. Then watch the series. It is what we will be like when we leave this planet, and we have the ability to go places at a much faster rate than we do now. That, that's society and, and things. It's fascinating. To me, I mean, when my son was born in my first marriage, I looked at him and said, you're going to walk on the moon. No, not yet. <laughs> now, my grandson, who lives behind me here, he's seven, he knows more about freaking Mars. He's, and he's seven. He's reading books about the, the development of, so, of social structures on Mars. He's reading about the development of, of geography and, and industry on Mars. And it's like, he's seven years old. He's, he's fucking brilliant. He's going to go. He wants to go. Uh, you know, God bless him. One of the guys I raced log canoes with. Um, a log Roy canoe, sorry to interrupt you, is a sailboat, right? A yeah, it's a race. It's a boat particularly indigenous to the Chesapeake, but mainly the eastern shore. They're boats made out of logs. Okay. They have a clipper ship bow on them. They're very low to the water. They are way over-rigged. And I raced on them for 30 years. I didn't want people thinking it was like a canoe canoe. Oh, no, they're um, not. Okay. They're not. Uh, <laughs> Fuzzy little native boys in leather aprons paddling down a river with leaf-shaped paddles, you know. Yeah. These are full-out uh, thoroughbreds of racing. Okay. And, and I've been involved in them for 30 years and with Judge North from St. Michael's and the museum and a book. And I, I love them. They are brutally elegant boats. One of the guys I sail with, he's a shuttle pilot. 
You know, mm. this this eastern shore. If you invest yourself in a place long enough, you really start to find there are all these that crystal that I was talking about earlier with the, the stoned out hippies finding a place to live. Well, Chestertown is like that. It it is a magnet for this amazing assortment of people. That's why I feel so fortunate to do this because anytime I go anywhere, I'm just visiting family. And like next week I'm flying down to see my mom in Tampa and immediately like I'm reaching out to people, who could I write about? Who could I, um, because there, there, there are stories everywhere, but yeah, in particular here, there's a really interesting mix of people. Um, and the secret to the selfish part of me doing this is that I mentioned to you before we were recording, like how my life has just completely changed since I started doing this. Like, the, the selfish part is that I get to sit down with people I never would have before. Oh, you have a puppy. Oh, yeah. This um, is Sienna. Hey. And that... Um, no, yeah, you, I, you I, have a you, very unique hey. opportunity. Yeah. And I think you're doing it the right way because you're not doing it with a real agenda yeah. that you would filter who you're talking to oh, through. No. Um, but back to the story about yeah. jobs here. Hi. <laughs> so that's Phyllis. <laughs> Michael Buckley, okay, the kid that interviewed, they had the two kids that interviewed me, and he asks me, so are there jobs? And I said, no, and I said all this about the retirement community here and all the people coming here. And guess who most of the audience was? Retirees Mm. who had moved here. And at the end of the the whole presentation, Michael, and there were other kids with great stories and, and interviews too. At the end, Michael Buckley turns around and says, so Mark, what do you think? And I said, well, I guess I'm the kind of the turd in the punch bowl here. <laughs> <laughs> and Carla goes, oh my God, because she was in the audience. I said, but it's, I, sh- I speak straight from the hip and I tell you what I see and what I know and what I understand and that there are no jobs here for young kids. Yeah. I mean, not that I... I don't know, journalistic integrity or something, but I just like, I, I can't, I can't watch, like, I don't even know what you would call it, um, like entertainment news shows or whatever they oh, are. Oh God, no! Uh, it turns Gossip. my stomach. So yeah. yeah. So if I ever felt like I was you know, entering that world, someone could just shoot me. But um, okay, we've. If you ever want to do another one of these, let me know. Okay. We totally blew off that first part where you weren't even recording. Okay, so I will say I'd love to do a part two sometime. I don't know if you're a beer drinker. I'd love to treat you to a beer sometime or something, whatever. Yeah, you know, I drink a beer every now and then, but not very often. Okay. Um, I'm a scotch man, though. Oh, all right. Well, that... <laughs> we can do that. That'll loosen the tongue up way beyond what you want to do, so... That'll be uh, that'll be part two then. Yeah, this was a nice, chunky two hours, so... Um, There's a lot of meat in there. Yeah. There's a lot of each a lot of points that can just be even developed on even further. Um, it's like I said, uh, I started down here racing log canoes, and the gentleman who made the sculpture of the baseball player here in town, Swish Nichols, mm-hmm. his wife is a remarkable watercolorist. I was teaching drawing and painting up in the main line outside of Philadelphia. She was a student in class and said, would you come to the house and just do private lessons with my husband and myself? And I said, yeah, sure. And they had a house in Georgetown on the Sassafras River. And when they weren't using it, they said, you and the kids and Phyllis can use the house. That was my introduction to the Eastern Shore because Ken Hurley, the sculptor, wanted to do one of these guys out on the springboards that balance the log canoes. 
And we made arrangements, and I wrote letters and things, and, and we finally got to go see them. Well, he never made the sculpture. We moved down here five years later. I've done over 470 paintings of these boats. Um, and his wife, Pat, had said to me, you might want to go to Rock Hall. And it's an acquired taste, but you're interested in boats and water and things. You might like it. And it It's just, I, I look at it as a cultu cultural anthropological study that just got out of hand. Mm. It's, I live <laughs> it now. And it's the Hemingway part of my growing up in high school. He lived what he wrote. Mm. I'm living, and I'm so fucking lucky I get to live what I paint. I love that. Well... Thank you, Mark. <laughs> My pleasure, man. Cheers. My pleasure. <laughs> All right, Voyagers, that is a wrap on episode 256 of the Voyages of Tim Vetter podcast. Thanks so much to Mark for having me in his home and for having this conversation with me. This one felt really cool and really special. And uh, yeah, I'm very fortunate to be doing what I'm doing. Um, wanted to add a an addendum of sorts I had asked, I, I had made a statement that perhaps for the watermen, what they might consider mundane or, or just like a normal part of their job is something that Mark is capturing. And he wrote to me afterwards and he said, what, a, what watermen might call mundane is for others a mystery revealed, a moment of bliss or inspiration for me, a conjugation of light, shapes, figures, and pattern. That is, that's really beautiful and that is an, an artist's eye and it's something that I think if you can sort of turn down the noise of life, you can capture some of those moments that he is describing there. And the noise might be electronics, it might be your phone, it might be just like the chatter in your own head. Um, Mark discussed studying Buddhism in this conversation. And I think in a sense that relates to that statement that I just read that he wrote to me and that you can miss a whole lot when there's too much noise going on, whether that's actual noise or, or sort of the noise inside your head. So if, if you make resolutions, I don't know, um, if you head into 2022, maybe something that you think about is just trying to notice those beautiful moments that are, exist all around us that we often miss because we're preoccupied with work or anxiety or too many thoughts in our head or we're reaching for our phone every two seconds or whatever. Um, something that I think I work on now, but I'm going to try to be a little bit more conscious about. So hope you enjoyed this conversation, folks, and I hope you have a great holiday season here and you get to visit your loved ones and let them know that you love them. Um, I love doing these conversations. I'm getting excited for 2022 because I know I'll be doing some more traveling and I'm starting to reach out to people and make a list of, of guests that I'd love to have on. So hopefully I get a lot more episodes next year and I'm always happy to have you along for the ride. So for now, I'm going to sign off and say... As always, please, please, please take care of each other. I will catch you very soon. Bye-bye.